tortoise. Hello, I'm Giles Wittell. We're recording this episode in front of a live audience in the tortoise newsroom. Hello! From Tortoise, welcome to the news meeting. Breaking news from the disputed territory of Nagorno-Karabakh. Armenia now says over 13,000 people have fled across the border. A judge in New York found that Trump's business empire has been built in part on rampant fraud. The Rosebank development, oil and gas development of the west of Shetland has just been approved. We will not be able to sustain an asylum system if, in effect, simply being gay or a woman or fearful of discrimination in your country of origin is sufficient to qualify for protection. Language that's unprecedented for a Home Secretary. Joining me on stage are Tortoise editors Basha Cummings and Jess Winch. Hello, both of you. Hello. Hello. And we're also very lucky to be joined by the comedian, writer, football fan, general polymath, Andy Hamilton. Andy, your book is out. Uh, Blue was the colour. A tale of tarnished love. Hello, Andy. Thank you. All right, let's get on with the news meeting. You've each chosen a story you think should lead the news. Uh, you're going to explain why. We'll discuss them. And then, and then at the end, I'll decide which ones tortoise should cover and in what order. We're going to start with long stories short. So in a single sentence, Basha, what's your story? My story is Suella's big bet on Suella. <laughs> <laughs> on Suella. Instructed that. Okay. Jess, what's yours in a line? Six young people take 32 countries to court. Ah, yes. And... Andy, what's yours in a line? Mine is, are Britain's workers getting more sick or are they just more sick of work? Very nice. OK, let's start with yours, Basha. Tell us about your story and why you think it matters. Well, as you can probably guess, I want to talk about Suella Braverman, but I really grappled about whether to pitch this because in a way I was loath to, because when you see something that you know has been designed to lead the news and you know you're getting played, it makes you feel a little bit scratchy about going for it. So I've decided not to pitch the facts of the story. So it's not the fact that Suella Braverman, Home Secretary, gave this speech in Washington a couple of days ago in which she said that we should move away from a world of refugee rights where, quote, simply being gay or a woman and fearful of discrimination in your country of origin is sufficient to qualify for protection and in which she suggested as part of that speech that we need to reconsider the 1951 UN Convention on Refugees. That's I don't think that's the story. She was never going to find big international support for that view. And I think the speech was designed for a different purpose, which is it was a piece of political performance art from Suella Braverman. And when you look at it that way, I think you can see what's happening a lot clearer. So it's, it's an escalation of the rhetoric on migration. It's designed to create this sort of haze of fury. We're all responding to it in exactly the way that I think they all predicted we would. There's been criticism from the UNHCR. And it positions her as this kind of bold, right-wing possible successor to Sunak. We're a week away from Tory party conference you can see that also from where she was. She was at this American Enterprise Institute, which is this very influential right-wing uh, think tank. And also in the rhetoric. So th one thing that she said, which I think is worth 
pulling out because we've heard it so many times before. She says that UK police chiefs have warned me of heightened levels of criminality connected to some small boats arrivals, particularly in relation to drug crime, exploitation and prostitution. And if that doesn't sound like what Trump was saying back in 2016, linking Mexicans to rapists and criminals, then I don't know what does. So it's not original in that sense at all. And so I think that's the story, that this is part of the building of a right-wing brand that she knows will be successful domestically. It's about building this illusion that she's somehow an international player. When you actually look at how many people in, were in the room for this speech, it's many fewer than mm. are in this room. So I think it's, it's part of a branding exercise rather than anything to do with migration. Okay, uh, devil's advocate, one quick question, right? Yes. Um, uh, one of the remarks in her speech was simply, we are facing unprecedented levels of illegal migration. Does she have a point? That's the thing. I think she does have a point. It's just not the point that she thinks it is, which is it's totally true that we have to figure out how to think about people moving around the world. And I don't think the right place is to question the values on which these conventions are built. I brought my little prop, a small blue book, which is the Charter of the United Nations, which was on my desk when I very briefly, and I should say quite unhappily, worked at the UN in Germany. And I thought, if this is about values, it, I might as well read it before I come and try and demolish her speech. And it, actually, there's something about it when you, when you read it. Published when? This is 1945. So this was published when the original con- charter was signed. And it, just to read the first sentence, so we the people of the United Nations determined to save succeeding generations from the scourge of war which twice in our lifetime has brought untold sorrow to mankind. And for these ends, to practice tolerance and live together in peace with one another as good neighbours. And, you know, this isn't the UNHCR convention, this isn't about refugees, but it gives you a sense of, like, that's not the bit to question. That's the bit to uphold. The the question is how we deal with people moving around the world. We know that climate change is going to force millions more people to move. And it seems like... Braverman is trying to question the values when, in fact, if you look at policy, so Rwanda is not happening. Ascension Island in the middle of the South Pacific won't happen. The Bibby Stockholm, if it happens, it's a tiny plaster, if that. Bibby Stockholm being the barge. The barge. The very poisonous barge. Um, So if she's trying to present herself as a big, long-term thinker, I think she's gone for the wrong end. But, of course, it works because we're all outraged and that's exactly what she wanted. Andy, are you aware of the Home Secretary schlepping over to Washington to speak to a largely empty room about... Yeah, I mean, there were aspects of it that were deeply comic. I mean, it does expose how weak Sunak is and he clearly knows how weak and vulnerable. Any other Home Secretary with her record would probably have gone by now. You know, she has conspicuously failed in pretty much every aspect of policy. He he dare not start a firefight with that rump of um, of right wingers in in the party. Her social skills are low. <laughs> Liz Truss low. Well, how low? Yeah, I'd say she. If we're measuring. Terrible social skills. If, if a truss is the imperial unit of social incompetence, 
She's probably one and a half trusses, yeah, I'd say so. I find myself riding to her defence, to my own surprise. You, mm. you mentioned that she's failed at everything, and, yes. and I, I wouldn't dispute that. But on the small boats, right, this was, it feels like a setup almost. This was Sunak's pledge, I'll deal with the small boats. But of course, one thing we all know about that is it's impossible to deal with. Yeah. So she was always going to fail on it. It was a hospital pass. Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah. But them's, them's the breaks in politics. <laughs> she, she picked it up readily, you know, and said, yeah, we'll stop the boats, you know. And that's why she's a comic figure to mm. people in my business who are always looking out for the, you know, the comic dimensions to politicians. That's why she's kind of comic. As she said, she's so aggressive. She, she's, she is a bull in a china shop. And that may be why... Ultimately, she's not destined for number 10, I think. Right. Um, Jess, Basher has pitched this as a story about the story, not about immigration policy, but about Suella's big bet on Suella. Do you buy the distinction? And how does it grab you as a story? You're a news editor. <laughs> From this news meeting perspective, I like the way that Basher's framed this story because I do share her feeling that quite often, a particular politician like Suella who would maybe consider criticism from the UN as a badge of honour, that by following all of the headlines on immigration, you are doing exactly what she wants you to do. And the actual story is to look at why is she doing this? What is her motivation in giving this speech at this particular time? Whichever way you look at it, really, it's a story that you have to talk about and it's a story that you have to print in, in some way. Having listened tonight, I think, and something I was talking about with our political editor, Kat Nealon, earlier, is actually who is her audience? Everyone seems to be assuming that she's positioning herself as the hard-right Tory leadership candidate if Sunak loses the election. But I'm not convinced her support is as broad or as scary as perhaps people think it is at the moment. It's a lot, she seems to have upset a lot of Tory MPs already. Is she targeting... I'm not sure how many Tory yeah. voters will... Is she targeting the membership? Uh, you know, is she targeting that group who, you know, twice now yeah. have, have voted for someone the parliamentary party didn't want? I wonder whether she's just sort of thinking if I can just... But in that sense, the lesson you've learned from trust, right, is that the membership might pick a leader who then very quickly becomes very clear can't win a general election. And I think the Conservatives have learned that lesson. Yeah. And I think that's why I, I think your point about feeling a bit sorry for her is maybe slightly off because it's not like I mean it's a, maybe it is a hospital pass but she's taking it and she's running with it mm. and she's building a political brand around herself that is based around it so if it was a true hospital pass you'd think she would be trying to minimize it she'd be trying to divert attention in fact she's traveling to Washington and and trying to you know imitate some kind of great leader who's asking the world to redefine what it means to be a refugee from the narrow tribe of, of Tory factions to the broader one of the British people. Andy, what's your story and uh, why should it lead the news? Well, this is outwardly a boring story. It's, it's a survey by the Chartered Institute for Personnel and Development, who, who I follow on a, daily, <laughs> on a daily basis. They did a survey and they concluded that the average number of sick days taken by the British worker has gone up since the pandemic. Um, we now average 7.8 days per annum, whereas it used to be um, 5 point something. It is an outwardly boring story, but I think maybe it hides a more interesting 
kind of nuanced story underneath the figures. They're not really startling or surprising. I mean, the problem with always with figures like these, when you when you look down, look at them, is all right. That's the number of sick days has increased. You don't know if that means that people are more sick, you right? Know, um, By the way, I think it is quite a startling figure. Seven point, let's say eight days, on average, for the for the, I think that's a okay. Well, you obviously <laughs> you obviously a more conscientious worker than I was, but um, what? Yeah. And you think that's it, it high? Is the, it is the most uh, the most since two thousand and four, and yes, I think it's high. Okay. <laughs> uh, and, I don't, I don't what, think the increase is phenomenal. That's what that's that's the point I was making. I don't think right. the figures of themselves are astonishing. In the report, they attributed it to COVID, cost of living, and stress. What what I think maybe the figures indicate is that our attitude to work collectively is changing. You know, certainly when I was growing up, you know, my parents' generation and my generation, and and some of the people here. Work was seen as important. You defined yourself by your work. It gave you your place in the world. I think it's different now. You know, I'm very lucky. I've, I've spent my life doing something I love doing. But for most people, you go to work for economic survival. It's something to do. And you get to hang out with your mates. <laughs> That's a huge part of work was the social aspect. Now, all of those factors have sort of faded away a little bit. My dad would have crawled to work with a broken leg. He was the epitome of presenteeism. But the fact that people now think, do you know what? I've got a bit of a sniffle. I won't go and risk giving it to my mates and my workmates. And anyway, I don't really fancy going in because the offices are so quiet now. Mm. I walked through the BBC newsroom uh, recently. It was like a library. It really was. And I remember the BBC newsroom as a place of chaos and kind of argument. But it was exciting. There was electricity. You thought, oh, great, this is television. You know, but you walk through now and everyone is on their laptops. They've all got earbuds. So yeah. it's not going to be a, a magnet. Basha, big story, little story, sickies? Um, for me, a medium story. I would be so interested to see whether there's an age breakdown of who is, who is calling in sick more. Because I think I have a gut feeling that I think young people's relationship with work has really changed and I think that's partly because we treat young people differently you know the the chance of getting a permanent contract or even a stable contract has really changed um there's so much sort of you know you you get a gig somewhere here somewhere there and so you're kind of that loyalty to like I've got to drag myself in I've really got to you know show up it's like the, the the relationship between, I think, companies and, and yeah. people has changed and loosened. So I think that, for me, would be an interesting thing to explore. The issue with this story, as I think we've kind of demonstrated, is that its flaw is that it's very hard to draw clear conclusions from this from particular, stats. from these surveys. You need more, you need more detail, you need more numbers to actually try and yes. come to any conclusions about what it's telling us. What would be useful is seeing what the figures for sick days were in 1963. Yeah, at the height yeah. of the Cuban crisis and things like that. I think we always have a tendency to think, oh, this is the most apocalyptic time there's ever been. And the danger of that is you kind of end up, as a society, we end up kind of marinating ourselves in this anxiety. And I think, unfortunately, those figures aren't available because it wasn't spoken about. Mm. Right, I saw what you were doing there, Jess, just very <laughs> gently beginning to undermine the story. Yes. 
Um, brazen. Andy, uh, thanks very much. Let's take a moment and then we'll hear what Jess thinks should lead the news. I'm Afwa Hirsch. I'm Peter Frankopan. And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra. An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring, and so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. Love she Cleopatra. is an icon. She's the most famous woman in antiquity. She's got to be up there with the most famous woman of all time. But I think there's a huge gap between how familiar people are with the idea of her compared to what they actually know about her life and character. So for Pyramids, Cleopatra and Cleopatra's Nose. Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. Jess, what have you got? So this is a story about six young people taking 32 countries to court. Uh, six years ago, there were horrible wildfires in Portugal that killed more than 100 people. And what I love about this story is that six young people in Portugal decided to do something about it. And I think when you're faced with a lot of climate stories that make you feel very small and that nothing you can do to make a difference, I just think this is a really good example of of taking action. So Sophia, Andre, Katerina, Claudia, Martim and Mariana went up to Strasbourg today with their lawyer. They actually physically went? Yes, by train. All right. For all the way <laughs> from Portugal? Is, yes. Well, they couldn't fly. I don't think they, they were going to fly. <laughs> so they went there and they are accusing 32 European countries of violating their human rights for not doing enough to address climate change. And this was a story that obviously has been a long time building. It was raised by an audience member at a live recording of the news meeting earlier this year. And now it has happened and they have had their day in court. And it is the first climate change case that has been filed with this court, with the European Court of Human Rights. It's the first time that so many governments have had to defend themselves. And I think it must have been a busy courtroom because there are more than 80 lawyers in total defending the 32 countries. I think there are six representing the, the six uh, Portuguese young people. I keep wanting to say teenagers and I can't because the oldest one is 24. They're 11 to 24 years old. And it could have a real impact. It could force governments to do more to reduce their emissions. It could force them to build cleaner infrastructure because this court's rulings are legally binding on all their mm. members. And if countries don't abide by the ruling, that they can face pretty huge fines that are imposed by the court. So I think there's a lot at stake here. And I think this could be a really interesting test case. And what do they have to prove? They have to prove that they have been sufficiently affected by climate change to be considered victims as a group. They have to prove that governments have a legal duty to make sure that global warming is held to the levels agreed at the Paris summit in 2015, which was ideally keeping global temperatures at 1.5 degrees Celsius above what they were in pre-industrial times. And their argument is that while governments may be saying that they're committed to the agreements and saying that they are committed to bringing down emissions, that too often these policies are politically malleable and that no one is holding them to account, no one is properly scrutinising actually are these 
policies you're implementing going to achieve what you say they are. And the lawyers have said today that actually if you look at these 32 countries and the climate policies that they are imposing, you're looking at a temperature increase of around two to four degrees right. rather than 1.5 to, to two, which is what they want. But isn't it the case that the legal kernel of this is that they're young? Uh, and uh, Am I right that um, ultimately it will hinge on whether or not their lawyers can argue, can succeed in arguing that they've been discriminated against because they're young and as young people they've been given a sh- excuse me, uh, <laughs> future? Yes. So they're arguing that their right to life, their right to be free from inhuman or degrading treatment, their right to privacy and family life and their right to be free from discrimination which are all articles under the European Convention on Human Rights, are all at risk as a result of the inaction from governments on climate change. So as part of, so that in order to, you know, as part of their argument, they are citing examples for, that you know, their schools have been closed when the air has become unbreathable due to wildfire smoke. Some of the children have health conditions such as asthma that they say is already being made worse by uh, climate change and heat-related problems in Portugal, and that that is going to continue getting worse as they grow up about what's happening in court, the people in the dock are governments who will be forced to argue that they've done their best by young people yes. rather than BP and Shell saying, no, it's, no, no, we still have yeah. a right to No, burn. it's governments. And they are saying that they are committed to these goals, that they are committed to international cooperation. But most of their arguments that I could see today were more around admissibility. They were saying that these young people should have gone through the domestic courts first, that they shouldn't, they haven't got the right to take it straight to Strasbourg. And they're saying that because they're all Portuguese nationals and not nationals of any of the other countries, that actually they don't get to have a say in how other countries manage their climate policies. Do they have a catch chance in hell? <laughs> I don't know, but I'm going to play that to my advantage and say that that adds suspense. <laughs> so we, we don't get a verdict now, I think, for about n- at least nine, maybe up to 18 months. But what they're hoping is that there is precedent in this because there was a 2015 hearing where a Dutch organization took their government to court for not doing enough. Uh, for not, they said their emissions targets weren't ambitious enough and it was impacting their human rights. And they won. The Dutch Supreme Court sided with them in 2019 that the government's emissions reduction target was too low. And that has meant that the Dutch government has had to shut down coal-fired power plants. They have had to adopt billion euro packages to try and reduce their energy use. So that, I think, is, is one model. And then we're seeing more and more of these cases. I think there are sort of more than 2,000 climate-related cases now worldwide. And there was... One just last month in Montana, which was also led by a small group of young people. And the judge found in their favour there, too, saying that the state was violating their constitutional right to a clean and healthful environment by permitting too many fossil fuel projects. Andy, does this strike you as a substantial story? Yes, it does. And I mean, I know this is not how you're supposed to play this, but <laughs> I'd go with that. <laughs> just because I think, I think it is a brilliant development that the moral force of children fighting for their future. The politicians and the governments are going to be loath to get into a sort of dirty fistfight politically with an organisation that is spearheaded publicly by children. Basha, kids court climate, is this a substantial story to you? I think angry kids is, is a substantial story. It's sort of not about whether they win or lose. I don't know about the legal mechanisms and whether you can link the causality and the consequences and whether you can hold this state to account at a you know, regional level or whether Strasbourg is the right place. I don't think any of that matters. I think any kind of push 
for accountability where governments are going to have to account for how they are trying to limit or deal with the climate emergency is good. It's also easy to forget, like you say, we, I think the climate crisis, we kind of marinate in that too, to the point where we think there's really not much we can do. You know, Sunak speech pushing back next net zero commitments, we go, it's terrible, but we'll just have to live with it. And actually, you know, kids standing up and saying, actually, you're gambling on our futures yeah. is powerful. It's very powerful. Okay, so those are the stories. Climate kids, Suella's big bet, sickies. <laughs> uh, and in a moment, I'll make a decision about the running order. But in the meantime, you get to choose, without choosing your own, which one you would put at the top of the news. So, Basha, you first. Angry climate kids. Angry climate kids. Yeah. Yes, Andy. I'm the same. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. You can't choose yours. I think I'm going to go for Braverman or Sweller bets on Sweller. Okay. So uh, before coming in, I asked myself a question about each one of these stories. On uh, Climate Kids, do they have a chance? Yes or no, I put, and I've ringed yes. Precedent, I think, is really important here. We have seen in the Netherlands case that, that this kind of litigation can actually yield results, change policy, change carbon footprint, progress. Question about... Uh, uh, the Braverman story, does it serve the purpose as a story? Uh, I've just written the word grabby question mark, yes or no. And I've circled yes there uh, because it certainly is. Um, that leaves open the whole question about whether it deserves space. We'll come to that in a second. Um, and on UK sick days, I asked the question why, yes or no. Do we know, right? And on that, we're... We're still confused, aren't we? There seem to be a lot of possible explanations. I prefer the word nuanced to confused. <laughs> I, I, I think it's a fascinating story, uh, but we're going to put sick days at number three. We've got more work to do to find out why so many. Is it, is it because people are more relaxed about calling in sick, which I think is a very... It's a very powerful change, a very significant change if it's happened. Very difficult to call, you know. Yeah. Call the, the, the time that it's happened. Call peak, peak sicky or peak relaxation about sickiness. Um, there's also the sniffle factor, as you said. Uh, Braverman, I'm going to stick at number two. A bit like a car crash, there's a sort of compulsion to look, even though you know you don't want to or perhaps shouldn't. Uh, but it is important because it will uh, bear on who runs the Tory party, uh, quite probably in opposition. And uh, it does address a problem that has to be addressed. But I, I share all your reservations about the story as well. Um, and for my money, the six kids suing 32 countries at the ECHR is the runaway top story of the day that's how i'd run the stories remember you can email us about them about the ones we cover or the ones you think we've missed just send your thoughts to newsmeeting at tortoisemedia.com but given that we're joined by all you people in the newsroom let's see what you think about the stories we've just discussed or we should have covered what have we missed so me, as an immigrant myself, I've been really impacted by the news about immigration and refugees. So I wonder how the UK 
is going to be impacted by this, by the strict rules of immigration. For example, international students, they are not able to come anymore. People that want to improve their future, they can't come anymore. Even people with degrees are getting their visas refused. And people that are living here, they are getting their visas refused and deporting them. So how is that is going to affect the UK, right, the economy? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, since this is a discussion about stories, I would package that into the debate about uh, whether there's going to be, for example, a free trade deal with uh, India, which will depend to a very large extent on student visas, but perhaps not timely for today for tomorrow's news, which is in a sense what we're thinking about. Thanks very much. Now, this is not to trump yours at all, but something that links nicely into the ECHR and Suela Bravman, something I was writing about recently, So, of course, you'll know that in 2022, uh, the government attempted to deport a handful of Rwandan uh, migrants to Rwanda and then got blocked a year later by the ECHR. And now that is being weaponized uh, by Tory ministers and particularly Swella Bravman, who has come out and openly advocated for leaving the ECHR, which is, in my opinion, terrifying. Um, so, and that has now become a fulcrum upon which Rishi Sunak's premiership potentially lands and will be based on. So now he's getting back backed into a corner, whereas before he said he would never leave it and it's a great foundation for our human rights. And of course, we were one of the first countries to ever ratify it. But I think it'd be really interesting looking at how that might play out. Basha, this was your story. Do you think we are realistically headed out of the USHR? Yeah, possibly. I mean, we did Brexit. So, yeah, yeah, anything's possible. Um, Definitely, when I was thinking about how to pitch this story, you know, the way that she... It feels like they had a policy, they went for it, they got stymied by the courts. So what's the next thing you can do? You can try and, I guess, shift the ground under some of the legal and policy principles that underline or, you know, underpin what we're talking about. So if you change a bit the definition of a refugee, that might help their case. And she she mentioned the Rwanda deal being stuck in the Supreme Court as a as part of the speech. So it's these things are clearly connected, I think. On that note, I think that's all we've got time for. So, Andy, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Basha and Jess, thank you both very much as well. That's it for this episode of The News Meeting. If you enjoy the show, please rate and review it wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back on Monday. Until then, goodbye. Tortoise.